and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Today, I'm really excited to have one of my favorite people join me on the podcast, Trinisa Stanford-Denuza, who is a accomplished communications and marketing executive who's worked both on the agency side and in corporate environment. And she is going to talk to us about her journey. Hey, Corinne. Thanks for having me. If you could share your 30-second bio. I think that the elevator pitch about my experiences, I started... Uh, my career in crisis communications as a storm chaser for the American Red Cross, transitioned from there into the agency world, doing things, everything from ear thermometers, coffee makers, and hair curlers, transitioning from there into the New York environment and beauty, doing things for consumer packaged goods for Procter & Gamble, like CoverGirl and Max Factor and Vidal Sassoon, and then on into the corporate space where I was able to take all of those experiences along the way and to have a very senior level role with the global positioning, heading up communications and strategic alliances at the Estee Lauder companies. Storm chaser. We got to talk about that for a minute. Was beauty a destination or a detour for you? It was definitely the right turn, but having started my career in really a very serious industry, which was being on the front line of rapid response during natural and unnatural disasters, and really being a part of a core team that would sort of drop into environments where literally there weren't street signs because the winds blew them over or the fire burned them down. Or my last assignment was the Oklahoma City bombing. So even when bad people did bad things, the Red Cross was there. And my job was really being a communicator that was thinking on her feet, trying to tell the story of the good work that the Red Cross was doing, but also really being a mediator for the people that were on the ground that were affected by whatever that crisis was. I'm really grateful for that experience because when I transitioned into agency and into corporate and when they were having their fires, it was so vastly different from the real thing. And it really helped me to be sort of like that constant level-headed person in the room when there were a lot of fan flaming, if you will, or flaming of the fan or however you say it. But I was a constant. I had a level head because I knew what a real disaster was. How did you transition to agency and consumer goods? How did you make that transition? And what precipitated that transition? Well, I mean, it's just work. You know, my husband had an opportunity and we ended up moving to Boston. And so I had to get another job. And having worked in the communication space, you know, I started pursuing, you know, agencies. And so I was very fortunate to find an agency in Boston that had a really strong portfolio of consumer goods. And one of them was Braun. And so, which I was assigned to Braun and Braun, because of the company it was, had different verticals. It had medical, it had food and beverage, and it had beauty. And there was a moment when Braun decided that they wanted to be cute and make hair curlers and and shavers that were, you know, and this is showing how old I am. It's like the shavers were for men to sort of groom their five o'clock shadows. And so that was sort of my early entry into beauty because at that point I was talking to media that was covering the beat of, you know, appearance, 
products that were for beauty. And so that's really how it started. I was with Braun at the same time that I was talking about coffee makers. I was also talking about curling irons. And after that, did you like fall in love with beauty and decide this is the direction or sort of did it just happen? Well, it kind of happened in that I had a boss that moved to Boston from um, New York and she was one of those sort of stereotypical snotty fashionista New York ladies. And so she was my boss and she saw the work that I was doing in the beauty vertical. And she's like, oh, Trinisa, you need to go to New York. And she literally was like this. <laughs> and she was miserable in Boston and her husband had a similar situation where his job brought him there. And so she just needed someone that she could commiserate about how, you know, we need to leave this town and we need to get ourselves to New York and we need to be working in beauty and fashion. And so just sort of breathing that energy. And then she was very supportive and I, you know, I kid about her, but she really was a catalyst for exploring how far I could take this beauty thing. How did you get your first beauty job? My first beauty job was actually an agency job. When I decided to listen to that nutty old boss that was encouraging me to move to New York, I started kicking around agencies in New York. And one of them that I found was Marina Mar Communications. And I had a fantastic career. Marina Mar to this day is a mentor for me. And she was I had a couple of job offers, but the truth is she was the one who was willing to pay a relocation fee for me. And so I was like, okay, I'm yours. If you want to help me to pack up my boxes, I'm moving to New York. And so interestingly enough, you know, my first assignment was CoverGirl and Max Factor and Vidal Sassoon. So everything that I worked on was beauty. And then the fashion piece came in because at the time that I was working on Vidal Sassoon, it was a sponsor of New York Fashion Week. So now I'm working with all these crazy hairstylists and getting them out and backstage and we're telling those stories. So it was a real fun time. And then my role at the company evolved to be the lifestyle and trends person. So I was able to sort of oversee the full portfolio and I was able to sort of uh, insert the sort of relevant trends to make things that weren't so sexy, like incontinent panties. That's a thing. Um, and deodorant, low interest categories, and how do you get some sizzle and interest in those? And so it really just strengthened me to go beyond sort of being the beauty girl, but also taking a strategic approach to communications marketing. Given that you started in crisis communication and you worked on the agency side, what skills did you learn there that set you up for success later? A couple of things. As someone who hires people, I'm a little biased to seek out people that have had agency experience. And if you haven't had agency experience, I also firmly believe in nonprofit experience because you have to do so many things because they have limited resources. So you just sort of get a deeper, richer skill set. But when I was working in the agency environment, there are a couple of things you learn. You have to bow down to a couple of guys. You've got your internal bosses and then you have your external client bosses. And then there's also this really needed skill of sort of shifting gears and often when you work in an agency, you're not just working on one brand and one client, you may have a portfolio. So how do you sort of flip the switch and say, oh, today I'm talking about secret deodorant, tomorrow I'm talking about the latest lip gloss from CoverGirl. And, you know, they're applicable skills, of course, but they're different strategies and different approaches. And sometimes having that diverse experience and being in an agency will help you with the ideation of what you can do to support it. Later, you moved to corporate. You went to Estee Lauder. What was the biggest difference going to corporate 
from an agency? The biggest difference was that I was on the front line at corporate of actually seeing the product being born. When you're in an agency, they sort of plop it down in the conference room and say, hey, get some sizzle and sound around this. And, you know, oftentimes it's a dud. And so being in corporate, I was able to say, I'm looking at the full competitive landscape here. And granted, we need to fill this space in our SKU lineup, but I'm going to manage your expectations. We have 17 other competitors that already have this. Let's put it out there so that our consumer can have it. But please don't come to me expecting a lot of excitement around it because it's not new. And so having that sort of moment of being on the front line of seeing a product and giving the counsel of like what's going to be an ownable moment for a brand versus just sort of a sustained kind of keeping the portfolio new and giving a service item to a client or to the customer. And so that was, to me, very exciting because often when we were in the agency, you know, our clients would say they're all excited because they're drinking the Kool-Aid. And then we're all sort of giving our the side eye, like, nobody cares about this. But, you know, the job was to find a way to make it compelling and interesting and stand out. But being in corporate, you were able to sort of be on that front line and say, we need it. Our customers probably want this, but this isn't the thing that we need to hang our marketing dollars on because it's not going to necessarily break through the way maybe the lady in the lab who's whipping it up thinks it should. Yeah, I think that's important. What was the learning curve like? Was it an easy transition to move to corporate? I think every experience will be different. It depends on what you transition from. I had the luxury of being in a really supportive environment. I've had bosses that manage me with some level of autonomy, which really built my confidence in what I was bringing to the table. I knew that I was best managed when I had space to explore what I could sort of offer up. Let me give you my ideas first before you tell me what to do. That was how I was really fortunate to have bosses that were tolerant of that. So when I say transitioning from agency into corporate, it's more hierarchical. It's kind of militaristic in that, you know, it's like I could go to the CEO of the agency, but, you know, maybe within this corporation, I would never go to the CEO of the company, you know, you know, certainly there was access. So there was sort of this the rank and file kind of approach and you do your work and then your boss will take it and take it up the ladder. And even when I came into the corporate environment on a very senior level, I still was beholden to following the ranks. So that was interesting because there's a more of a collaborative approach, I feel like in an agency and maybe in a corporate world, it's a little more siloed. Yes, I'd agree. Now, what was interesting to me is when you were interviewing for Lauder, you talked to me about going on the interview with your Afro. How important is it to bring your whole self and be authentic at work? I think it's everything. And I think right now, more than ever, we're emboldened to do that. I think when I went there many years ago, it was interesting in that the interviewing process was very long and it was a big job and it's a big company. So I understood that. But I mean, I went all the way to like the top with my final interview. And I don't know if it was because it was the job or if it was because of the person who was potentially being considered for the job. And I say that with great respect because I don't know but I think that, you know, I'm old enough to know that, you know, you don't necessarily have the interview with the most senior person in the company to get a job. But I did. 
And I think it was because I was going to have a very public facing role as a comps person. You're on the front line. You are an embodiment of that brand. You're talking to the media. You're talking to the stakeholders on behalf of that brand. So it was really important that everybody was comfortable with this decision. I get it. And I said, well, if you know, if that's the game we're playing, then you just need to know what you're getting. And I will never forget the day that I had the interview. It was the Cosmetic Executive Women's Lunch and, you know, the CEW Awards. I was dressed cute because I was at that, but then it was also like, well, I'm going to go right on over to that interview right after this. And it was very intentional about my natural hair. And at that moment, I was very intentional about my natural hair. And I said, I'm just going to give them the full afro. And if they can accept me in my fullness, then I'm not going to be having a career at a company where I feel like I'm being less than who I am. So I actually gave them a little extra, but then I could reel it back when I'm still my authentic self. And it worked. And I think it's important, especially where we are now, for younger people to realize that they can be authentic as well, like that they should be authentic at work. It makes the day so long if you're putting on an act. I think that, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done. And who wants to be distracted with keeping up this persona and doing the work? So if you're just bringing your full self, then you can have your full focus on the job you're trying to do. And I I firmly believe that. That right there is a word. Nobody wants to be distracted by another persona. What's the unsung skill you need to succeed in the beauty industry? As a Black woman in the beauty industry, I think that there's an expectation that you're sort of the spokesperson for the whole race. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times where I had a swath of like seven different foundations and moisturizers. I'm like, yeah, but I like this one skin. I'm like, this is my skin tone. I can't tell you how that's going to work on my sister who's several shades lighter, several shades darker, you know, just sort of. There is this skill set of sort of this level of advocacy that we have to do on behalf of the people that aren't in the room. But there's also the skill set of quiet tolerance because you will be tried and I have been tried. And I've always had to sort of do this internal conversation of what's my face doing? Because there are a lot of messaging that's sort of bouncing around in my head and it may not necessarily be appropriate for the workplace, but I had to sort of be patient with the process. And I have to believe that there may be less need for that given where we are today because the code switch and sort of let's not make waves and Maybe there's a consideration of making other people feel uncomfortable. I think that we're in a really good place of sort of training our colleagues and into the future that, you know, I don't have to weigh and assess that as much as I had to in the early days of my career. Let's shift a little bit and let's talk about the current landscape and how beauty brands are responding. Do you think that these brands can keep the momentum going or is it our responsibility to keep them accountable to the goals. I think there's already some, the term is called allyship fatigue. And it's like, you know, how dare you get tired so soon? I mean, we've been doing this for 400 years. 
So I just need a little more tenacity from our allies. But ultimately, if it does fizzle out, then we as Black people and people of color have been emboldened in a way that maybe we couldn't speak out as loudly because of those other considerations. But I think that we're sort of at a new starting point in the conversation. So even if the allies start to fall along the wayside, I think that they can never forget. And you always hear that term, you know, with 9-11 and all those sort of tragic things. I think that 2020 is a never forget moment for us. And I have a good friend who lives in LA and he said something that really stuck with me. He said that this time for black people is sort of like the black me too. And just like it would be unconscionable to think that it's ever going to be okay for a boss to come and put his hand on your knee in the workplace or to say something sexist to you, the black me too is it should be just as unconscionable for someone to do the things that we've been experiencing, the bias, the microaggressions, the macroaggressions. And so if we sort of see it as this is the black me too moment, that how can you go back so you can never forget? So even if there is the fatigue of the allies, and I believe some of them are in it for the long haul, but ultimately it's our experience, it's our journey, it's our progress, so we can't get tired. But I am a little excited that I get to sort of sit back and fold my arms and rest and let them do some of the heavy lifting for a while. But that's just charging our battery because we know we're going to have to pick it up again. Charging our battery for real because the work is never over. You've built some amazing teams, both at the agency and during your time at Lauder, how do you identify top talent? Well, my philosophy for building a team is building it with people who have skills that I don't have. And that's really key. I feel like there needs to be a diversity in capabilities. So if I'm good at one thing, there's a gap and I need to hire somebody that I will always tell you, I'm like the 30,000 foot big idea person. My arms are always waving in the air and I'm, you know, throwing out ideas. But if you want me to sit down in front of an Excel chart or put down some things, and you know, that's not where, you know, so I need someone that can help to organize. I can be creative and ideate, then I need to add to the team with someone who's great at organizing and taking all of those big ideas and helping to ground them in some actionables. But the biggest piece for me is having a team of people where you feel like there's a level of trust. I've always needed more so than even being the most talented, I needed to know that you were an honorable, trustworthy person because we're going to make mistakes together and we're going to rely on each other. If we have a job to do, I need to be able to turn my back and know that it's getting done and it's being done with excellence. And so that's a really important characteristic for me in building a team is knowing that, you know, there's a real understanding about sort of the collaborative spirit and the trust of the team. And it's probably more important to me as a Black boss because the world is the world. And so I had a different level of scrutiny of people that I added to my team because I am your Black boss. So if you've already sort of come to me with what I can sniff out as some bias or some issues or some, I don't know. Sorry, I had to factor that in. I'm like, I don't know if you're going to ultimately get down with the idea of having a Black woman telling you, yay, nay, no go. 
And so if that's going to be an issue, then you certainly can't be on the team. And so that's probably that more underlying part of it. Are you sort of like an ally in the fact that you can see the opportunity of having a diverse work experience? Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And I would agree with that. And I think it's a combination of trusting your gut because you can read signs. Your antenna will alert you if there is just something that they could look good on paper, but if there's something great that you latch onto, but there's something that uh, I'm not sure that this is the right person. You have to trust that. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. I've inherited people where I didn't have the luxury of using that, and I've been pleasantly surprised. And I've hired people and they fooled me. So, you know, it's like you don't always get it right. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. (laughs) You don't. When do you know when it's time to leave a job? Probably at the moment when you say it's time to leave the job. I think that, you know, we need to follow our instincts. I know that we all want our paychecks. But if you start to feel yourself, literally, I mean, you know, we can know it's a hard lead. We gotta we can see the calendar and we know we've got 79 meetings and this and that and certain personalities we have to deal with. But if you're not finding a way to sort of eke out some level of joy in that job, it may be time for you to start looking for something else. I can tell you that I've had moments where I want to call in sick. I didn't want to deal with it. And that's normal. But that wasn't time for me to leave the job. It was just kind of like it was just like a mood. But I think that if that mood becomes sort of more of sort of the ongoing cycle for you, I mean, life is short. And I think that we have to advocate for ourselves and place ourselves in environments where we're feeling like we're being utilized to our fullest potential. And that's usually the biggest indication when you're in a job and you feel like you're being underutilized or what you're contributing isn't valued. Then you're right. You should go somewhere where you can take all your talent and be valued and have a fresh start. A follow-up question on that. What is the path to promotion? The path to promotion is the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I think that you can work as hard and think that you've done everything right. And I've had this happening in my own career where I'm like, this is like textbook kick butt good work. And then you sit down and you with your boss and you get a satisfactory. I'm like, come on now. So I think that the path to promotion is really being a squeaky wheel. And what I mean is that you've set up a regular time with your boss to say, let's talk about how we're doing. How am I doing? You don't want to wait until it's review time and raise time and promotion time to hear for the first time that, oh, well, there's this in this area where you could have improved. And I haven't been in an environment yet where somebody was looking out for me. You have to do this on your own. You're going to have to have a rigid schedule where you say, let's just, you know, I want to come and see you every three months. I mean, let's just talk about, you know, here's a project we just completed. Let's do a postmortem. But you're going to have to really be proactive and you still might not get what you want, but at least you won't be shocked 
when you sit down and don't get the full raise or you don't get the promotion you're working for, but you're going to have to drive this thing because I don't know of anyone that has had a boss where she's just like, I just need to make sure you get a, especially when it's black people, we're sort of like, you should just be lucky to be here and just keep it going. You know, and then you often see people that are doing a fraction of the work that you're doing and they are getting promoted and raises and that's certainly demotivating, but you have to do everything that you can to feel like you're driving that narrative to get the feedback so that you can course correct or so that you can question because they're not just handing out free money and promotions. Not to us. (laughs) Not to us, for sure. This is the last question before we go into our more fun questions. Let's talk about angry Black women, the label, the trope, and what is your advice for managing that? The truth is, are we a little angry? (laughs) I mean, I know it's not not nice for someone else to say to us, but, you know, let's just be honest. There is that. But managing that anger is definitely a skill set we all have. Like I said earlier, I do the exercise of what's my face doing? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be vocalized. What's my body language doing? How am I sitting? There's some real, you know, stereotypical cues that maybe your colleagues may be trying to feed into. Don't give them, you know, hide your hand a little bit. So we're going to have to be better at playing that game. But I also believe that if I disagree with you and I'm respectfully disagreeing with you and my disagreement is based on my expertise and my experience, then I don't know why I have to package it with the bow and sugarcoat it and whisper it. Because we've all been in the room where we've seen table-pounding disagreements. And we've all sort of sat there knowing that if that did that, these people would have HR here so fast. Um, So there are definitely limits to our expression. And unfortunately, that is the case. Because when you're packaged in this brown skin, there's some amplification on stereotypical things that people tend to see. So the angry black woman is definitely a four-letter word in the workplace. But I think our owning it and knowing that the audience that we're dealing with, the colleagues that we're interacting with, are already sort of prejudging that they should expect that. I'll give you an example, and then we'll do the fun stuff. I was in a meeting, and a woman mispronounced my name. My name's Trinisa. It's homemade, you know, black people, you know, that's what we do. It's not that hard once you know it. You may not necessarily know how to pronounce it when you see it in writing, but once I say Trinisa, it's okay, let's move on. But this woman was saying my name and she's like, is it Trinest, Trinest, what is it? And it was like, she was frustrated that my name wasn't easier. And she said, I'm just going to call you T. And I said, uh, and this is where the angry black woman thing comes in. I said, no with a smile, you will call me Trinisa. And we moved on. And so I defended myself. I checked that woman. We were in a room full of people and everybody witnessed that I was kind. I smiled. I advocated for myself. And I'm not going to be relegated to one initial because you're too lazy to give my birth name your time. And I said, no, you will call me Trinisa. And then I moved on. 
But the real backstory to that was that it was a colleague of mine who said days later, it was like a Friday when that happened. And she's like, come, 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 let's talk about it. It was a white woman. And she's like, I just thought you were going to lose it on her. And that's where the angry black woman, it was less so the woman who was trying to abbreviate my name, but it was more so this woman sort of bracing herself for a Friday night brawl. And I said, no, we don't do that. And I walked away. She expected me to go off on this woman. And I was like, shame on you. Shame. Right. So see, her perceived biases were like just showing her hand. But there's some keys here. Fix your face. You know, just like our mothers would say, fix your face. When we want to talk back. And I love that you said we don't have to put a bow on everything. We can be kind and clear and advocate for ourselves. And that is something that we, I don't care what level of your career you're in, this is advice we can all take home. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. What was the very first beauty product you either bought or tried? (laughs) I thought about this and I was, I just saw myself and one of my childhood friends and we were buying, I don't even know the name of the product, but they used to be these shampoos that actually smelled like fragrance, like a well-known fragrance. And you know this stuff didn't work on black hair, first of all, because the whole point of it was to have your flowing long tresses. As you moved, you would have the fragrant wisp of air. And I was like, I want my hair to smell like whatever that fragrance was. Sure, it was dry and probably truly unmanageable after using that. But that's a product that I remember, like, I was, I need my hair to smell like this perfume. (laughs) Forget about what my hair looked like, but it did smell good. (laughs) And then it was also interesting, the impact of advertising that we wanted our hair to be squeaky clean, which was the worst possible thing to do. What was the latest beauty product you tried? I have a friend who is working at a company uh, that's called Quanta. What they do is they, it's like MIT guys that decided to play in the lab and do stuff with active ingredients, zap them, polarize them, and it increases the activation of that ingredient three to five times. So anyway, and when you're in beauty, sometimes your face is a lab. And so he said, let me send you some of this product. And um, it was a moisturizer and it's an eye patch and it's a face sheet. And so... I was like, whatever, what are you talking about? And I am loving this stuff. The moisturizer is, shoot, I'm excited. It's a, a just a new moisturizer that, you know, has some active ingredients that have been zapped to be even more potent. Well, that's a good hook. That's a good hook for a company. What is the beauty advice you either live by or leave alone? I live by your confidence is the most beautiful thing about you. I don't care if you smell good and if you've got the latest high-end lipstick. But if all of that is covered with just no confidence, then it's not working for you. So I live by that. And oftentimes, you know, I'll opt out of all of that stuff. I mean, especially working from home. I'm like, if you saw me, be scared. But I feel confident. (laughs) 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 What do you leave alone? Beauty advice that, you know, common beauty advice that you might leave alone answer for that one. I don't know of anything that anyone has said that it, I don't leave alone. I mean, some things don't apply. So it's not as though it sort of impacted me that I tried it and it didn't work. I'm like, that's not advice for me. 
So I guess that's my answer. It's like some beauty advice just isn't for you. And what I'm happy about is that I'm getting beauty advice more and more in my life from people who look like me and have experiences like me. And I'm also happy to see that the landscape is changing where there are products that are made for me. Who gave you the best career advice and what was it? My boss um, at that agency, when I told her I was leaving the agency and I was going into corporate, she said, bring all of Teresa. And I have. <laughs> you did. Woohoo. Are you a mentor or a you mentee? Have to be both. You have to be both. I have experiences that I'm always happy to share with others. And people have experiences that I hope that they'll be generous enough to share with me. So we're always sort of the teacher and the student. That's how I live. What's the best interview prep tip you can offer someone? Well, I think that the obvious thing is you always need to be prepared for like those difficult questions or like, what aren't you good at? And what are your weaknesses? And, you know, everyone's going to throw that and they reworded them all kinds of ways. But basically it's sort of like, what's your Achilles heel? But I think really understanding what's going to differentiate you in that environment. What do you bring to them is the most important thing, you know, because everybody's going to say, I know how to write a press release. I know how to do a marketing strategy. I know. But what is it that you can tell them that's ownable to you and that no one else that they're interviewing is going to be able to say? Um, and so build that into your sort of experience narrative. What's that experience at that past job that was unique and quirky that, you know, it's going to be engaging. I always tell the story about my storm chasing because people are like, what in the world is a storm chaser? And I'm like, it's a real thing. And it sort of launches into what is ultimately the skill set of me being pretty comfortable with crisis communications. So just know what makes you different. Because sometimes you go into these things and sort of saying what you think they want to hear. And would you say that's what makes a candidate memorable as well? Absolutely. And the other thing that makes a candidate memorable is when you come and you prepare great questions for the interviewer. Because they'll say, well, is there anything that you want to ask me? Always say yes. And always have a really interesting and well thought out question for them. Because that just shows more that you've done your homework. And then it's going to give you a little more face time with them. Because it's not like, nope, that's it. Gotta go. No, it's like always take advantage of that. So do you have any questions for me? Have one in your back pocket. This has been wonderful and I think empowering for our listeners, especially if you are a Black woman or want to be an ally of a Black woman in the beauty space. Yes. Well, thank you, Corinne, for having this platform. It's great. You've always been someone who has been thinking of paying it forward for future generations. So I commend you on all of your commitment to uh, being a resource for the future. Thank you. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here.